evidence and answers. God has revealed himself through his creation. Creation each day points its finger to the creator. However, the creator has also revealed himself directly in the person of Jesus Christ. At the 2023 Evidence and Answers Conference, Pat presented the evidence for the creator incarnate. You're tuned to Evidence and Answers radio broadcast with your host, Pat Zucaran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Continuing on with our series taken from the 2023 Evidence and Answers Apologetics Conference, our host, Pat, shares a fantastic message entitled, Creator Incarnate. Now, here's Pat. Please give a hand for our next speaker, Dr. Pat Zucaran. Yes. I also want to introduce a good friend here, Mark Benson. Here, Mark Benson is with the Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C., the largest Bible museum in the world. All right, so you want to go there, uh, you want to talk to him about it. Fabulous, fantastic museum. Also, everything that we're talking about tonight, you can get on our website at evidenceandanswers.org. A tremendous resource for you. A lot of you are telling me you listen to our radio show. Thanks for listening to our radio show. We're on Monday through Friday on KGU and on Saturday on K-Lite. And we're on the number two talk show station in the Philippines. And so we've got a great uh, following there. But our website has uh, hundreds of articles and videos Hundreds of podcasts with Dr. Ross, Dr. Howe, and other great Christian scholars, debates uh, that I have had with people from different worldviews, and tremendous resource for you there. So all that we're talking about, you'll be able to get there at evidenceandanswers.org. Well, the evidence, as you have heard our speakers talk, the evidence is pretty compelling that there is an intelligent creator who created all things. And this intelligent creator seeks a personal relationship with you and I, and he has made it possible to know him. And the creator has communicated in three primary ways. As you heard tonight, through what he has created, Romans chapter 1, he has also spoken through what we call special revelation, through his word and through his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was a real historical person who claimed to be the unique divine Son of God and uniquely confirmed his claim through his miraculous, sinless life and resurrection from the dead. Now, Christianity is true, okay, if we can prove two of its basic premises, all right, that a personal God exists and Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Okay, I'm making it real simple. If we can prove those two premises, then indeed Christianity is true. And the greatest message has come to all of mankind. Now, how do we know? I want to focus on the resurrection here. There's many aspects of the Bible and the life of Christ that we can go into, but tonight I want to talk about the resurrection. How do we know that Jesus rose from the dead? Well, we begin with the minimal facts. This was developed by a good friend, Dr. Gary Habermas. Uh, you want to read about the resurrection. He is the top authority on the resurrection here. And these are the minimal facts, okay? 
they're accepted, they're well attested to, and nearly every scholar from atheist to agnostic to liberal to evangelical, we agree upon these seven facts, that Jesus died by means of crucifixion, the tomb site was known and found empty, there are many who claim to have seen the resurrected Christ, the sudden transformed lives of the disciples, that the preaching begins in Jerusalem where these events took place. The preaching begins very early in the generation, okay, in the lifetime of the eyewitnesses, days after the empty tomb, and we have a massive Jewish societal transformation. Right Now, I won't be able to go into detail on all seven of these. We'll just highlight just a few, okay? Especially number one, Jesus died by means of crucifixion. I was debating the uh, Rational Response Squad. They were at one time the most popular atheist website around, and one of the arguments they threw at me was they said, if Jesus was such a famous historical figure running around doing these miracles, how come there's nothing written outside the Bible, of him. How come nobody mentions him outside the Bible? I said, well, you're incorrect. There are about a dozen, little more than a dozen non-Christian historical works that mention and talk about Jesus, all right? And they affirm dozens of facts that the Gospels and the book of Acts presents, okay? And I went through some of them. And I said, what's even more compelling, all right, is that these writers did not have a favorable view of Christianity. As historians, uh, that's my arena, we call this enemy attestation, all right? Those of you in the legal field know this. When your opponent agrees with your facts, that's some of the most powerful testimony in court. And same thing in historical writings. Uh, When you see the opposition agreeing with you or confirming your facts, that's some of the most powerful testimony there in historical writings. And here we have several Jewish and Roman historical works that affirm many of the facts of the Gospels, and these affirm that Jesus died by means of crucifixion. Now, we don't have time to go into all of them, but here's the famous one by Josephus. He was actually a Jewish general who fought against the Romans in the Jewish-Roman War in 66 AD, and he surrendered and became a historian for the Roman Empire there in the first century. Much of what we know that went on in the first century in the Near East comes from Josephus. And in that brief paragraph there, he pretty much sums up the story of the life of Christ, doesn't he? He mentions just a few of the facts that Jesus was a real historical person, that he had many followers who believed that he was the long-awaited Jewish Messiah, that he was crucified under the governor of Palestine at that time, Pontius Pilate, And that Christianity continued to spread even after his crucifixion. We have a Roman historian, Tacitus. Tacitus has proven to be a very good Roman historian. And there in that brief paragraph, he basically summarizes uh, the gospel message there. He writes that Christ was a real historical person. That he was crucified during the reign of Tiberius Caesar and uh, Pontius Pilate was the governor over Palestine, just as the gospel records, and that Christianity spread rapidly throughout the Roman Empire after Christ's crucifixion. 
right? And the way these guys, when you read them, the way they write about Christianity, they're not very favorable towards Christianity. Then we have other dozens of archaeological discoveries. I don't have time to go through all of them tonight, but here's one of the famous ones. It's it's called the Nazareth Decree. This is a marble slab that was found in the city of Nazareth in about 1880. And inscribed here is a decree from the Emperor Claudius there, who ruled from about 40 to 50 A.D. And he writes a decree here that no grave should be disturbed or bodies extracted. And it's very interesting here. Anyone is caught doing so, the penalty is death. That's very unique. You don't see it, you know, people messed with graves back then. It's, it's not an uncommon thing. But a decree like this from the emperor must have been very significant with the penalty of death. Well, what was going on here? Well, in 49 AD, he came down to Palestine. And he probably heard about the resurrection and the empty tomb. And as a result, wrote this decree. The evidence is very compelling, so much so that two of the most liberal critics, right, and they say that they're agnostic, but it seems more like they come from a naturalist or an atheist worldview. Some of the most liberal critics of the Gospels, they reject 80 to almost 90% of the Gospels as historical. They reject miracle accounts. They reject the resurrection. But here's what they say. John Dominic Crossan says, That he, Jesus, was crucified is as sure as anything historical can ever be. Bart Ehrman says one of the most certain facts of history is that Jesus was crucified on the orders of the Roman prefect of Judea, Pontius Pilate. Those are what two of the most liberal critics say regarding the crucifixion of Jesus. So he was a real historical person who was crucified while Pontius Pilate was governor over Palestine. Second, the tomb site was known and was found empty. In all the Gospels, they tell you exactly where Jesus was buried, in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, a ruling member of the Jewish council. Right Now, John Dominic Crossan tries to get around that by saying, well, they made up this figure, all right, Joseph of Arimathea. Well, that's absolutely fatal. All right, If you make up someone, you make up an obscure person, so nobody knows who he is. You don't pick a prominent ruler of the Jewish council, and say Jesus is buried in that man's tomb. All right, I play Les and I over there, the chairman of the Evidence and Answers Board. We play golf every Tuesday with the former lieutenant governor of Hawaii, Duke Iona. Now, if this were not true, if I were making up the whole story, I play golf every Tuesday with Duke Iona, that could be easily verified. He's a well-known public figure. That could be easily verified. And for the gospel writers to say, Jesus is burying this guy's tomb, he's a prominent figure in Jewish society, that, that'd be absolutely fatal. There are many resurrection appearances. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 8, is an ancient creed that we can date to within five years of the resurrection. Most likely, it's within a year of the resurrection. Right? It says over 500 witnessed the resurrected Christ. And psychologists and psychiatrists know hundreds of people don't have the same hallucination at the same time. And also, you got guys like Thomas, right, and Paul, who were skeptics. Paul was an enemy of the gospel. And for these men, men like that wouldn't have a hallucination of a resurrected Christ. And we have the transformed lives of the disciples. What best 
What is the most reasonable explanation for the sudden transformation of the disciples? We know that after the crucifixion, they went into hiding. They were afraid that they were going to get it too. Well, what explains the fact that just about three weeks later, they go back into the city of Jerusalem. All the leaders who had just crucified Christ are still there. They go right back into the city of Jerusalem and say, hey, the guy you just crucified, the tomb is empty and he is the resurrected Messiah and he calls you to bow down and worship him. What would cause that sudden transformation? All the leaders who had just crucified Christ, they're right there. The enemies of the gospel, the enemies of Jesus Christ who had crucified him, they're still there. What caused this sudden transformation for them to suddenly go right back into that city and start preaching this message that they knew would probably cost them their life or bring them a life of suffering and persecution? I mean, what what causes that sudden transformation? Then we have the fact that the preaching begins in Jerusalem. What's significant about that? Well, that's where everything happened. The preaching of a miracle-working, self-proclaiming Messiah who was crucified and buried and his tomb is empty, and they're preaching it right in that city. All the eyewitnesses are there who can verify their accounts as true or false. Their message could not have lasted in Jerusalem. It's like saying here, a guy died, he was buried in the Middle graveyard here, all right, and his grave is empty today, and some people say he rose from the dead. His grave is there. You can go check it out. Okay, it's not like it's in India or somewhere. Jerusalem's not that big of a city. Back then, Jesus is buried right outside of the city. It's not a far walk to his grave to investigate all these things. They're preaching The message they were preaching could not have survived had it not been true. It happened right there in the city that they're preaching. And the preaching begins very early, right? Just a few weeks after the claimed resurrection of Christ. You know, we were in Africa. We spent a lot of time in Southeast Asia. And it was interesting that Mormonism is spreading in those areas. In the United States... Mormonism is in decline. Why is that? Well, we can investigate the claims of Mormonism. Hey, I'm, I'm in the area of archaeology, and we have done a lot of archaeological work looking for these Mormon sites written in the Book of Mormon. We haven't found any. All right, That's why it's in decline here in the United States. A lot of these studies are getting out. But they're in Southeast Asia and Africa. They don't have access to the archaeology and the archaeological studies that we're doing here. So it's, it's kind of proliferating. The preaching of the disciples isn't in a faraway land. It's right there in Jerusalem, days after the empty tomb. How does a message like that survive? And then we have a massive Jewish societal transformation. What explains thousands of Jews no longer worshiping on the Sabbath, on Saturday, but worshiping on Sunday, something traumatic must have happened. What explains thousands of Jews suddenly no longer sacrificing there at the Jewish temple? Because they believe a guy named Jesus Christ fulfilled the Old Testament law. What explains this sudden transformation? Acts chapter 6 verse 7 states that even a bunch of temple priests joined the community of believers in Jesus Christ. If you know Jewish people, 
they are serious about obeying the Old Testament law. If you talk to a dedicated Jew, I mean, they're still trying as best as they can to obey the Jewish law. But here, you have this massive Jewish societal transformation here. What accounts for this? Now, any explanation that you give has to account for all these facts. As historians, when you posit a hypothesis, it's got to be explanatory in scope, okay? Account for all the facts relating to the event. It's got to be explanatory in power. It's got to provide the clearest explanation for the data with the least amount of effort and ambiguity. It's got to have plausibility, okay? It has got to be the most reasonable explanation over others that are presented. It's got to be less ad hoc, meaning makes less non-evidenced assumptions. And illumination, it explains other known facts related to the historical event. All right? So you put those minimum facts together, okay? And what is the most reasonable explanation for the empty tomb and the rapid spread of Christianity? Several explanations have been given over the centuries, and they have all failed. They've all failed to account for all the facts. The oldest one, of course, we find in Matthew 28, the disciples stole the body while the guards were sleeping. Well, that's a tough one, right? Matthew doesn't even bother to refute it, because it's it's so implausible. How could 11 disciples come in the middle of the night, roll a two-ton stone up an incline, and not wake up one guard? I mean, you just read this explanation really is implausible here. And history shows us men and women will not die for what they know is a complete lie. They will not. Nor will they convince friends and family to surrender their lives for a message they know to be a lie. Women went to the wrong tomb. Well, let's go to the right tomb. Produce the body. That's the end of Christianity. You know, the swoon theory that Jesus went unconscious, right? And then three days later of rest, he revived, rolled away the two-ton stone, walked about 13 miles to Emmaus, and appeared as the glorious risen Savior. Well, that's called the swoon theory. It, It comes and it goes. It comes and it goes, you know. But how likely is it that Jesus, after losing all that blood and taking the punishment that he took in their medical articles on the kind of punishment that he lost a whole lot of blood. How likely is it that a guy with no medical treatment, no food, no water could revive? It's not hard to tell if a guy is dead, you know? There was a man, I was speaking, uh, I think at a university in Chicago, and he was trying to posit the swoon theory, and he said, well, Jesus died relatively quickly, and so they could have made that mistake. And I said, well, medical studies have been done. You know, if I got you hanging like this, and you're perfectly healthy. I haven't beaten you up or anything. How long would you last just hanging like this? Well, medical studies show you'd last about 15 minutes. All right, so to continue, extend the pain, the Romans, of course, nailed your feet down, and so you had to push up to breathe. All right, so you got to do this to breathe, and then you go back down, and you do this. Okay, if a guy's not doing this, he's just, guy's dead, all right? Can't breathe. Yeah, I mean, it's not hard to tell. The guy's dead. Okay, so how likely is it they could have the executioners who are experts in this, those who had to clean and dress the body would would not notice that there's some life in him. And uh, 
you know, with three days, no medical attention, no food, how likely is it that he would revive and roll away a two-ton stone? And David Strauss is a 19th century atheist, put the final nail in the coffin. He said, even if Jesus did make it, how would he have appeared as at Emmaus? As a glorious risen savior, the victor over death? Probably would have looked like a beaten man in need of some serious medical help. The only theory really that's left as I watch men more brilliant than I debating on this issue is really the hallucination theory. That's in one form or another, that's really the only one that's presented to explain away the facts. And, you know, psychologists and psychiatrists know hundreds of people don't have the same hallucination at the same time. But even if they did, all the authorities would have to do is go to the right tomb, produce the body, and that's the end of Christianity. The arguments that have been presented to try and give an alternative naturalistic explanation have all failed. The most reasonable conclusion is that Jesus Christ has indeed risen from the dead. Now, as Dr. Howe and Dr. Ross showed you, the evidence is pretty compelling that God exists. Okay? And the resurrection is a miracle. It's an act of God. But if God exists, miracles are possible. Okay? In fact, they're actual. The greatest one has already occurred. God created the universe out of nothing. Okay? If God created the universe out of nothing, how hard is it? For God to part the Red Sea, feed 5,000 people okay, with five loaves and two fish. How hard would it be for God to resuscitate a body from the dead? If there is a God who can act, then there can be acts of God, right? So you put the evidence together, I think the resurrection is the most reasonable explanation. And if Jesus rose from the dead then we have some monumental implications tonight. If Jesus did indeed rise from the dead, he is the creator incarnate. He is who he said he was, the unique divine son of God, God in the flesh. Second, Jesus then is indeed Lord of all creation. Lord over you, Lord over me. Third, all that Jesus taught is indeed true. And Jesus taught he is the only way to eternal life, the only one who could pay the price for our sin and rescue us from eternal death, eternal separation from God. He's the only one that makes a relationship with God possible. And so you and I have a decision to make here. John says, For God so loved the world, he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So you have a decision to make. The evidence is there. A personal God exists. He has come to this earth to suffer with us, to pay the price for our sin, so that we can have an eternal, everlasting relationship with him, a life of meaning, of joy, of purpose, and of hope. But you have to receive him as your personal Lord and Savior. Each one of us has to humble ourselves and say, yes, I have sinned. I have not lived up to God's perfect standard, and I need a Savior. And the Bible calls us to believe or to trust in Jesus Christ, that he was who he said he was, 
that he died for our sins and rose again. And if you would trust Christ as your Lord and Savior, then you can have a relationship with the Creator now and forevermore. That relationship you can have beginning tonight. And if you'd like that relationship, then the Bible says, for all who believed in him, to him he gave the right to be called the sons and daughters of God. It begins by trusting him as your Lord and Savior. Our time for today has come to a close. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show. Would you or your church be interested in having Pat speak or host an apologetics conference? Just give him a call. In Hawaii, that number is 483-0586. Or you may contact him through the Evidence and Answers website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. And while you're there on our website, take a look around. We have a wide variety of different topics that will make for an incredible conference series. Use our search engine for available resources. We have everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism, including articles and additional audio free to listen to or download. So be sure to share our website with those around you. To keep quality broadcasts like Pat's on the air, we rely on generous financial support from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to partner with us, you can find a link to donate on our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Evidence and Answers would like to thank one of our sponsors, the Honolulu Christian Church. If you don't have a home church and are looking for a great place to connect and grow in Christ, check out the Honolulu Christian Church. For service times, log on at honoluluchristian.org. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide compelling reasons for faith in Christ. That's Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucran. Oh, 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 oh,